I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with John Hawks. John is a professor of anthropology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is a paleoanthropologist, so someone who studies ancient humans. He studies their bones. He actually goes out into the field and digs up new fossil specimens. He knows a lot about evolutionary biology, evolutionary genetics, human anatomy, and human fossils, and our, our history as human beings. This is the second time he's been on the podcast, episode number 10. I did with him, and that's a great episode if you want to go back and listen to it about all things human evolution, which is what we also discussed today, and we covered a lot of ground. Um, We discussed where humans came from, how long ago modern humans emerged. We talked about all of the different species of humans, the different species in the genus Homo that we belong to that once lived, everything from Neanderthals to Denisovans to Homo erectus and other species. We talked about the extent to which there was uh, contact between all of these different branches of of the human family tree, the extent to which there was interbreeding, uh, where that happened, when that happened. We talked about things like the evolution of teeth and human diet, how the diet of modern humans differs from great apes and some of our ancestors. We talked about the evolution of bipedality, walking on two legs, and when that happened. We talked about all all sorts of stuff, really. Um, And towards the end, we also discussed Homo naledi, which I discussed on a previous podcast with his research partner, Lee Berger. Um, This was a subject of a recent Netflix documentary called Cave of Bones. And long story short, they discovered about 10 years ago a brand new species called Homo naledi, which lived hundreds of thousands of years ago. It had a brain much smaller than ours, about a third the size, not that much bigger than a chimpanzee's. But they discovered many, many remains of Homo naledi in one cave, and they appeared to be placed there and buried on purpose. And so we discussed some of the latest findings related to Homo naledi that they've made in the past couple of years, what we think the species was doing in terms of its cognitive capabilities and whether or not it had cultural practices. It is a fascinating story that's being updated all the time because they have so many fossil specimens that are so well-preserved. And so we talked about what they know there, what's coming up in the future. And so if you're interested in human evolution and, and the story of humanity and where we came from, this is an excellent episode. And don't forget to check out my earlier episode with John, episode number 10. As always, if you enjoy this content, please support us in any way that you can. Like, share, and subscribe. Share your favorite episode with family or friends. And check out the Mind and Matter Substack at mindandmatter.substack.com. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix Mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D 
is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. John Hawks. Yeah, I mean, how, how have you been? Where have you been? <laughs> well, South Africa, we had a great field season this year. And of course, a lot of exciting work going, to, going on at Rising Star and other sites. Um, I've also been, uh, last week I moved my son into college. So we've got, you know, family stuff that's happening. We're getting ready to ramp up another school year, um, teaching uh, teaching biology of mind again. And so we're, you know, sort of, I've got these aspects of um, how we study the evolution of brains and minds and behavior on my mind. Yeah. I mean, that biology of mind, I took that course with you, you know, a decade-ish ago. And that was mm-hmm. that was one of my favorite classes. That's great. Good. <laughs> I don't I don't know if it's possible, but yeah, if there's any way that you could get those lectures up, I think people would love that. Well, I think this year I am I'm, I'm embarking on a shift to it. Um and the reason I was supposed to be on sabbatical. So one reason why I'm keeping things small is because um it was unplanned that I'm teaching in the fall. But the other reason is that I really want to to refocus and to bring in some of what's going on with artificial intelligence, some of what's going on with machine learning and the way we work with neuroscience today with machine learning. And then the evolution side, there's been tremendous changes in the last five to 10 years that, you know, that, that I haven't been able to keep up with because of the field work. So I'm sort of using it as a, as a platform to, um, to renovate and to say, you know, how do we, how do we teach a course on the evolution of brain and behavior today? Yeah. And uh, so are you back in Wisconsin right now? I am indeed. Yep. And how long are you in Africa? Um, this summer, six weeks in the spring, I was there uh, for a couple of weeks as well. I'm usually in South Africa, three or four months a year. Oh, wow. So that's primarily the Rising Star Cave where the documentary was filmed? Yeah, that's that's our major field site. We also do work in the field at three or four other sites. Um, we've got a new site that we're working called the 105 site that has um, that has fossils we're working on now and uh, and some other sites, including Malapa, the place where uh, Australopithecus sediba was found. So yeah, wow. That's I mean that's that's so cool. Like you get to you get to travel to all these places and and dig up bones and yeah. do field work and not you know just be uh, you know just be doing uh, the other stuff associated with research. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, you guys are finding new stuff, like brand new species that that we're going to talk about. But like, was that you know? Because I talked to Lee uh, Berger maybe about a year ago, and he was telling me how for a long time you know, I, I guess in the nineties and, and the aughts, the thinking that was fairly dominant in paleoanthropology was essentially that all of the major 
species of homo and other things had more or less been found and there weren't a lot of gaps that were going to get filled in and that it was futile to be going around looking for new stuff was that the case and and what sort of led led to the transformation in, in terms of why you guys are actually out there doing this now you know i would say this is really true you know, when I was a student, we sort of thought that we were filling in gaps. We thought that we knew the basic outline. This was not, not without reason. The fact is that much of what we had found at that point looked like it could fit into a fairly simple picture. And particularly when we got to the evolution of our genus, Homo, it looked like you sort of had a basic outline where our genus arose a little over two million years ago. It started out with larger brains than Australopithecus, which had come before, and got bigger over time, and started out with biggish teeth that got smaller over time. And if you took those two trends, much of what we had found sort of fit into those two trends really well, based on the time that the fossils represented. So it kind of looked like we had the basic outline and what we were doing was filling in a picture that wasn't very complicated. It took some new discoveries that happened early in this century to shake things up and to say, oh, wait, we actually haven't surveyed the parts of the world where hominins lived. And as we look more widely, we're finding things we didn't expect to find. One of those was Homo floresiensis. The, the very small-brained, small-bodied hominin from Flores that lived until the late Pleistocene. It lived within the last 100,000 years. We said, wait, I didn't think there was supposed to be something that we hadn't discovered that was this different from us. At that time, it was still possible to say, but it lived on an island. It's off on its own. Um, maybe it didn't make a big difference to anything else. Australopithecus sediba, which is 2 million years old, also factored into this, factored in because it was in a place where we looked really hard, the middle of the cradle of humankind world heritage site in South Africa. And yet it represented a lineage that we hadn't seen. And it was at the time and place that our genus Homo arose. And so we said, we thought we knew this story, but actually there's something here that, that we didn't expect to find. Homo naledi was a big part of this. Because when we found it in 2013, it immediately didn't fit in. It had a combination of features that we hadn't, you know, that that combined features from very different kinds of things. And as we found out, it actually lived 250,000 years ago or so. It lived there when our species, Homo sapiens, had arisen. And yet it was super different from us. So those kinds of discoveries have made us revisit what we thought we understood. There's a tree that includes some very different species that coexisted with each other to an extent that we hadn't appreciated. And in fact, many of the places where hominids may have lived in large numbers, places like most of Central and Tropical Africa, places like most of South Asia, we actually haven't found fossil evidence in any large numbers. So we'd have no idea who lived there. And that's what's driving our exploration process today. It's what's driving our new way of thinking about 
how these species may have evolved. Yeah, how these species may have evolved. And I want to talk about the idea of species. Um, I think everyone has an intuitive idea, everyone walking around, whether or not they're an anthropologist or a scientist or just, you know, your average Joe. Um, Obviously, there are different things, right? Like we are not whales, we are not leopards, we're not chimpanzees. But as you get, you know, closer and closer in terms of relatedness, um, it becomes trickier and trickier to say, well, are they different species or are they not different species? Um, you know, Neanderthals and modern humans. Um, we'll, you know, we'll talk about some of that stuff. Um, and there's multiple reasons for this, I think. One, like just sort of the intellectual side, we need to have words and concepts to label things and talk about them. Uh, but also, you know, there's there's sort of a human uh, uh, like sociological side to this, because, you know, especially like in your field, right? When you dig up new bones, it's more exciting to find a new species than it is to find, you know, just another example of one that we found a bunch of. So there's these interesting tensions that happen. People talk about lumpers versus splitters, but I just want to ask you a basic question and get like your take on how you think about it and maybe sketch out some of the, the major ways that that many different uh, people think about it. But what are species and what defines whether or not two things are a distinct species? It's a super question. That's right. It's one that anybody should ask. And my attitude about this has changed over the course of my career. I started out as really a lumper. And I was like, you know, humans today are pretty variable. We're a species that has large variations in body size, in body shape around the world. And we look around and we see people that look kind of different in different places that are all one species, Um, that there's no reproductive barriers at all that's preventing people from being able to reproduce with each other, other than the fact that they live far apart. So I look at species and I think, you know, a species can encompass a lot of variation. I'm a unique, you know, in the unique setting of being responsible for naming new things as species sometimes. (laughs) And so I think really carefully about this. It's like, you know, how much variation does it take to call something different? We know that humans are a different species today than any other living organism. Chimpanzees, bonobos, they're close relatives of ours, but their ancestors diverged from ours more than five or six million years ago. And a lot of evolution has happened and they're pretty different from us. And we can't reproduce with each other. So we know they're different. Everything that we're looking at in the fossil record of humans and our relatives is closer than that. We're looking at species that diverged over the course of a million years, two million years, three million years. So how much does it take? I've been inspired a lot over the last couple of years by Darwin and his thinking about this because Darwin really famously, a lot of people have criticized Darwin saying he named his book on the origin of species and he never actually explains what a species is. (laughs) (laughs) It's true, actually. Darwin sort of has this famous line where he says, when it comes to species, this is not a literal, you know, quote, but but it has the gist of it. When it comes to species, I find the best thing to do is to trust people who know the group. <laughs> hmm. They'll tell me what species are. It's because there are these blurred lines. Mm-hmm. And of course, that was exactly Darwin's point. If Darwin's theory was correct, 
there should be blurred lines all over the place mm-hmm. because if species are evolving one into another and have emerged from common ancestors, they must have been able to reproduce in the past. And if they can't reproduce today, that must have happened gradually. So we should find all kinds of species that blur the lines, that reproduce with each other. And in fact, over the last decade or so, it's become apparent that that's exactly what we see all over the world. People used to talk about horses and donkeys being different species because their offspring, mules, if, if it's a mare and, uh, and a, uh, a jackass that are the parents, or hinnies, if it's the other way, right? If it's a female donkey and a stallion. Um, those are mules and hinnies and they don't reproduce. They're not fertile, right? And everybody understands, oh yeah, mules. That's what a species is when you have these two different parents and their their offspring are not fertile. But today we appreciate that in horse evolution, <laughs> there were lots of times that zebras and the different species of zebras and Somali wild asses and all of these different species interbred in the past. And that interbreeding was part of their evolutionary trajectory. We're seeing this all over the tree of life, that we've got reproduction between things that have long evolutionary histories, and that's important to to what happens to them, to their evolutionary fate. Species, Darwin said, the most important thing about them, the thing that I carry away from Darwin, is that the reason why we don't see a continuous range of intermediates between them is because of extinction. Species are created by the extinction of the things that were between them. Mm. And when I look at the fossil record of hominins, I think about that really seriously. Like, why is it that humans are different from our fossil relatives. Mm -hmm. It's because the things that were between them are gone. And of course, now all of the fossil hominins are gone, right? We're the only survivor of our lineage, right? Why is it that we're different from chimps? Because everything that was between us is gone. That has a functional consequence for humans and chimps. We cannot reproduce today. We have intersterility between our populations. That may have been true of many species of hominins in the past. They may have been intersterile, but they may not have been. What they were was different because they had evolutionary histories that some of them survived and the intermediates had become extinct. So when we're looking at the fossil record of hominins and I'm asking, what's a species? What I'm trying to do is identify aspects of variation that reflect an evolutionary history. I'm looking for the number of changes and the magnitude of changes that reflect some degree of history has has unfolded. At the borderlines, this becomes hard. With Neanderthals and African ancestors of humans, we know that those populations came together, that today everybody in the world has some ancestors that are Neanderthal, And most of our ancestors are from African populations that lived at the same time. And when we look at Neanderthals, we know that they had a history of repeated crossings with African populations. We can see the signs in Neanderthal genetics that they were getting more more and more genetic input from Africa. 
So I look at Neanderthals today and I say, I think that they're human, that they're part of the same species as, as all of us today, because there's this repeated interbreeding that's linking their fates. But many other anthropologists look at them and say, yeah, but they became pretty different and their fate had its own pathway and they're gone now. And so Neanderthals are a species. That's where we really have differences, where it's like, what happened to them over time? What happened to the intermediates? And did the interbreeding between them, did it make a big difference to their pathway, to their fate? I see. <clears throat> so so sort of the, the standard thing that you often hear in terms of a definition or, or read in a textbook is this idea of if two individuals can mate and produce fertile offspring that can go on to mate themselves, to produce offspring themselves, then those are the same species. If they can't yeah. do that, then they clearly are distinct species. What you're saying and what Darwin is saying is, yes, those things are true. If you can't produce fertile offspring, you're a distinct species. But if you just rewind the evolutionary clock and look at what happened, at some point, it must have been true that the things that today can't produce fertile offspring together were part of populations that once could. Yeah. And there's, you know, right, there's no clean cut way that we can just look and, and say that, you know, on May 24th, uh, 78,000 years ago, that was, that was the day. Um, there are literally these, these blurry lines. Yeah. It, it becomes a real issue with, uh, with conservation biology, right? We have an endangered species act and that protects species that are threatened because of their small populations and habitat, you know, damage and all this stuff. Right. And, and those species are defined by biologists and increasingly what biologists do is look at units in nature and say, um, oh, these different populations that maybe 50 years ago we considered to be the same species, they actually have an evolutionary history that we can see today with their genetics is very long. And yes, when we put them in a zoo, they interbred. And we didn't appreciate that we should maybe have kept them separate. <laughs> this is happening today with orangutans. We today understand that there's two populations of orangutans on Sumatra whose ancestors diverged more than 3 million years ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> and one of them is much closer to Bornean orangutans. They Their ancestors diverged a little over a million years ago. And the other one is farther. This new orangutan species was recognized in 2018. They call it um, Pongo tapanuliensis. And in zoos, Sumatran orangutans had been put together and had been interbreeding. And so we have hybrids of these different populations in zoos. We know that they can reproduce. All right. Today, it's very crucial for us to understand this evolutionary history and to protect these populations because they have a long history. And in fact, there's some differences between them. Most primatologists are very comfortable with the fact we have three species of orangutans. But if we use the old interbreeding criterion, you'd look at those and say, yeah, but even though they're different, even though there's these, you know, these deep histories, they can still interbreed. So species today, we recognize that what the populations and their histories do not determine their fertility. The fertility can persist for a long time 
mm-hmm. between species that have been separated in evolution that have become different in lots of ways. In some lineages, fertility goes away really quickly mm-hmm. because the chromosomes change because there's fast re- evolution of the reproductive systems. But in other organisms, it doesn't, mm-hmm. right? We have species, uh, the famous example of sturgeon and paddlefish, right? Who have been separated for more than 200 million years and still can produce hybrids. <laughs> yeah. And I suppose, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would suppose that in a case like that, where you've got a common ancestor that's so long ago, millions and millions of years, even though they can in principle, if you <laughs> force them to, in some way, produce fertile offspring out in the world, I'm guessing they probably don't just because they're either physically separated or because there are behavioral differences that make it functionally impossible that two of them will ever meet and mate. Where species overlap in nature, we usually find that when they hybridize, when they're forming hybrids, those hybrids are limited to certain zones. Baboons are a great example of this. Today, we recognize six species of them, and they're regional. They live in different parts of Africa and Arabia. And in the past, when I was a student, we usually called them all one species. What changed is our understanding that where there's hybridization, where we see hybrids, actually those hybrids tend to be pretty distinct. And sometimes they reintegrate into one group or the other, and there's gene flow between them. Sometimes genes from one of those hybrids do succeed and propagate into the range of the other, but they don't form a continuous sort of gradient. There's a boundary And the genes individually can sometimes cross the boundary and succeed, but it's not like a gradient of everything. With human populations, it's super different. Human populations, where we come into contact, we form a gradient. (laughs) And the only places where you see big differences between what we identify as racial groups are places where they've all been brought recently and are behaving differently because of social considerations. Races in humans are social thing, and they don't have a long evolutionary history. Where humans have lived for a long time, you see this continuous gradation of variation. Um, and that's really different from what you see with species that are different and hybridized. With species, you see actually there's no big, there's no long gradient. Where they meet, there's hybrids, but those hybrids, you know, sort of have a fate of their own. Mm-hmm. And yeah, one thing that's super interesting to think about too is, you know, species come into being when there is a limit placed on gene flow between two populations. I remember learning in, you know, evolutionary biology class back in the day, you you learn about allopatric versus sympatric speciation. And the first one's like really easy to think about because it just means two groups are um, geographically separated. So, you know, you can imagine, you know, uh, there's an earthquake and uh, an island breaks off from the continent it used to be a part of. And naturally, over time, because, you know, to, to a group of lizards can't cross the ocean, they're naturally going to become different, the ones on the island and the ones on the mainland, things like that. There's just this physical separation. Um, Sympatric is when somehow there is a limit to gene flow, but the populations are geographically overlapping. And I'm not sure. Sh- I don't personally know of many examples of that, but it's interesting when I start to think about human beings and in places like Africa, where you've got uh, lots of lots of space, you've got lots of different populations which are overlapping or adjacent to each other, and then you add the component 
that is very, very true of our genus, where we have complex cognition and culture. And you can imagine that even though there's um, not like physical separation in the sense of one group's on an island off in the ocean and one group is on the mainland, you could have cultural and behavioral traditions that start to evolve that, you know, give a kind of barrier to gene flow. And, you know, I'm just sort of thinking out loud here um, as we talk about all of the different um, species in our genus and how we originated in Africa. But, you know, I imagine when you guys look at the fossil record in Africa in particular, you know, for X number of million years, we had all of these different species and pseudo species or subspecies, whatever you want to call them. And there were probably, to some extent, physical barriers between some of those groups other barriers between other groups that were not that were physically adjacent to each other and everything in between including some admixture yeah when we look across african mammals because we know a lot about the biogeography of africa and we know today a lot about the genetics so it that gives us a dimension of history behind what today is biogeography we see that there are close relatives that often live in the same place um in south africa Africa, there are Niala and Kudu, right? Those are relatively close relatives of antelopes, and they live in the same region. And they will usually concentrate on different resources or different microhabitats. Um, so Kudu are a little bit more friendly to, to steep hills and mountains, and, uh, and Niala a little less so. But they're ecologically pretty similar. And you say, well, how did these become different from each other? Almost invariably, They've become different because they evolved in different places and were successful and have come back into contact. Mm. Sometimes the different um, environmental climate changes that have happened in the past, Pleistocene climate change was big in Africa as, as, as it was in Eurasia, um, but there it involved wet and dry cycles and the growth of forests, the shrinking of forests at different times. Species seek refugia of, of places where they are you know, well ecologically suited when the climate sort of goes against them. And then they expand when the climate changes in a way that that's friendly to them. And that brings different populations into contact. If they've become adaptively different and there's an advantage to staying separate, they can maintain separation, right? There's selection against hybrids. Um, with hominins, the, almost certainly that phenomenon was happening. Almost certainly humans and our ancestors are living in different places. We become well adapted to different microclimates. In Africa, this involves disease as well as, as sort of physical environment. So you're looking at places where you may have pathogens that are common there that you're resistant to that other nearby populations aren't. And that gives you an advantage in a region. All of those things probably made a difference. When we look at fossil hominins, we see that some of them that evolved and existed contemporaneously in the same place seem to have really different ideas of what they're eating. So robust australopiths are a good example. These giant toothed things that live at the same time as our ancestors, genus Homo, and they're probably ecologically differentiated. They're eating different things. With a species like Homo naledi, it's not eating different things from us as far as we can tell. And so we're looking for other possible ecological differences. But the fact is that among today's mammals, close relatives sometimes do live near each other and eat the same things 
and seem to have pretty similar ecologies because they're not locally limited on those things. And they've evolved in different places, but have come back into contact. So, you know, we talked about this a little bit last, we talked about this last time, but it's worth bringing up again, just to um, anchor the conversation. So I guess we'll, we'll spend much of our discussion here uh, in Africa, so to speak. Um, But I want to talk about, uh, you know, what are so-called anatomically modern humans? And Mm -hmm. can you just uh, state again, clearly where and when do, do they first appear in the fossil record clearly? Yeah. So when you talk about modern humans, we're talking about everybody in the world today and our fossil relatives, ancient skeletons of ancestors that have basically the same skull shape as today's people. Those arise basically within the last 120, 130,000 years. Hmm. Earlier than that, there are populations, or I should say there are fossils within Africa that have a lot of similarity to today's people and others that we call anatomically modern, but maybe have some features that are different. Um, These are from places like the Omokibish formation of Southern Ethiopia, where we have a couple of fossils that are about 250,000 years old from Jebel Hood in Morocco, a cave site where we have some fossils that are nearly 300,000 years old. Um, Those are the most similar things that we found in the fossil record to us from that era. And yet they're a little different from us. They're a lot more similar to today's people than any of their contemporaries, including Neanderthals in Europe and in other parts of Eurasia were. Um, So we're looking at the evolution of, when we talk about modern humans, a population that seems to have gotten its start in Africa that began sometime before 120 to 150,000 years ago and came from ancestors that we can see that were maybe 300 to 250,000 years old. I see. So roughly speaking, modern humans are, you know, they've been around for 120, 150,000 years. In other words, if we could resurrect those bones and reanimate them, they would basically look just like us and we wouldn't be able to tell any obvious differences if they were walking around. As far as we know, yes. <laughs> and they could always have something weird, like they could be blue, but probably not. <laughs> right. Their skeletons would fit in the range of variation of what we see today. I see. And then importantly, you said, you know, going back even 300,000 years, the the fossils that we're calling humans or, or anatomically modern humans, more or less, they may have um, some differences anatomically when when you guys look at the bones and compare them to extant humans but they're closer to what we see today than they were to any of their contemporaries living living anywhere else in the globe that we know about yeah the kinds of things that we notice about their skeletons are things that an anthropologist gets real interested in but nobody probably would notice yeah and yeah. um you know or or they would fall in the range of people that, that you've seen Mm-hmm. I would say that this is more or less true of Neanderthals, mm-hmm. right? And with Neanderthals, if you had a group of them sort of that you were hanging out with, you might start to notice, hey, these don't look exactly like the other people around. <laughs> but and a Neanderthal individual probably is not going to stand out as being real different looking yeah. from 
a, an undifferentiated crowd of people yeah. that includes so like, the kinds of yeah. variations we see in the world. Yeah. If you're at a party and all of a sudden a chimpanzee barges through the door, everyone's going to go, oh my God, there's a chimp here. But if a yeah. group of Neanderthals <laughs> wearing clothes walked in, uh, it might take you a minute if if you even noticed uh, they're, you know, they've got a little bit of a different build. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The kinds of differences that we see between them and us are things that we don't see in today's people, right? Mm -hmm. They're variations that don't occur today, but they're not variations that are huge compared to what we see today, right? They're variations that, that the pattern tells us that these are a different group, but it's not like they're, you know, it's not like they're a different kind of creature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, this is exactly, I think what you were talking about where, you know, the, the lines are blurry in evolution because yep. things change gradually. Yeah. So, you know, our genus originated in Africa. Um, there's a lot of super interesting variation that we've seen in Africa in terms of the fossils we dig up. And I, I know that, you know, this is something where there's been a, a lot of new discoveries that I probably don't even know about, but, you know, for a long time, and, you know, I could just in my own lifetime, I know that sort of the story has changed, but, you know, people often talk about the out of Africa model. Can you just summarize for people what the sort of standard picture of human evolution was, what this out of Africa model was, and what the, what the average paleoanthropologist thought about that idea, you know, 10, 20 years ago, and then start to talk about how has that picture changed since then? Sure. When I was a student, um, it was when this first out of Africa idea was was relatively new. And so I know pretty well what people thought before, right? Which was, we've got a deep fossil record in Eurasia. And our fossil record in Africa at that time was very limited uh, from the same time period. What, what, time, what, 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 what year was this? Um, in 1990s, let's say. Okay, right? 90s. So... Um, so we had a lot of fossils from Europe in particular, but also a good number from Indonesia, from China, um, from, from, you know, sort of more broadly across Eurasia. And they told us that there were hominins there more than a million years ago, that those hominins looked like things that we today call Homo erectus. And after that, they evolved to be something like Neanderthals and at the end of Neanderthal existence, maybe 40,000 years ago, um, you see these modern people that are there in Eurasia. And for much of the history of anthropology, that was interpreted in two ways. Some scientists said, this is just the evolutionary pathway. We started out as Neanderthals and we became modern humans and that's, that's our evolution. Others said, you know, this change from Neanderthals to modern humans, this seems kind of sudden. <laughs> We're not seeing much evidence of, of the in-between stage between them. And this all happened kind of recently. I bet that modern humans came from somewhere else and we just haven't found them yet. So the out of Africa idea built on the increased record in Africa, which had produced a couple of these fossils I was talking about, the Omo Kibish fossils, for instance, that said, maybe there's some early things in Africa that actually are much more like modern humans. We came from there. And the Neanderthals, maybe they don't have anything to do with us. Maybe they're separate. And genetics added to this starting in the 1980s. Genetics added in 
fundamentally two ways. The first way was an understanding that all of the people that we look at, and especially in the 1980s, all the people that genetic samples were coming from, as geneticists began to study their variation, they saw that people around the world today seem really limited in our variation. It seems like we came from some very small number of people. When we talk about small numbers, it looked like 10,000. Maybe there were 10,000 people in the world at some point. <laughs> that seemed very small. And it seemed like a number that was not very consistent with humans living in large parts of the old world. It was like, oh, maybe humans came from some small place. The other part of it was an understanding that humans in Africa are more variable than humans anywhere else. So if you're going to identify that place, it's Africa. And that began to align with what, what we had found in the fossil record, that, oh, there's early fossils in Africa that look kind of like modern humans. And genetically, it looks like Africa is a good source population. So this is now an idea, the out-of-Africa hypothesis. Neanderthals and Homo erectus and all these different groups that had once existed had nothing to do with our later evolution. Humans in the world today came from some small source population, and that was African. Today, we know a lot more about this, and the story has gotten complicated. The fundamental idea that all of us have African ancestors and our populations as modern humans emerge in Africa is 100% true. We know that this is true today. Where this has gotten complicated is on the two edges of it. The first edge is the African edge. Today, we appreciate that this small number, 10,000 people, is not a real number. It's a number that reflects the relationships and inbreeding in our ancestors, their structure in some way. And in fact, that population of ancestors that existed in Africa was large and diverse. In part, that change has come to light because geneticists began to get serious about sampling people in Africa, and they found out that what they had thought in the 1980s and 90s was subject to their, to their at that stage, insufficient sampling of variation in Africa. Mm -hmm. So we today appreciate African populations today have an, a heritage of variation from groups that were diverse more than 100,000 years ago. And everybody that lives in the rest of the world whose traditional ancestry comes from Eurasia or Oceania or other parts or the Americas, right? Everywhere else where traditional populations lived after 50,000 years ago, all those people came from one small group that lived sometime around 70,000 years. So there was a very serious bottleneck and that bottleneck is a bottleneck that was European, Asian, Oceanian, and American, right? It's everywhere else in the world. Africa never went through that bottleneck. African populations retained variation. So when today you look at variation around the world, you say, well, Africans reflect our ancestry to a degree that reflects variation. Other populations all come from one small source. The other way that things got more complicated is we have ancient DNA from ancient groups, including Neanderthals. And we found that, oh, 
actually these people contributed to some degree to later populations. That degree is small. It's something like 2% in the populations of the world that have the most Neanderthal ancestry. But it is a legacy that comes from these earlier populations from Eurasia. And in addition, we know today about the Denisovan populations, these groups that we only have genetic samples from in the eastern part of, of Eurasia that also contributed to different groups. So we know that we have a minority input from these very divergent ancient groups and that most of our ancestry globally comes from African groups that lived before 100,000 years ago and that within Africa, indigenous peoples, peoples who trace their heritage to Africa have more of the variation and peoples who live other places have really restricted variation. And it's because of this series of events. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain amount of genetic variation in Africa for some amount of time in our genus Homo, um, mm -hmm. because that's where we originated. Some subset of those humans eventually leave Africa and sort of seed the rest of the planet. And so there is a real bottleneck there where a relatively small number of individuals yep. literally make it out of Africa and uh, have offspring that contribute to the future. Mm -hmm. As they do that, there is some amount of interbreeding with things like Neanderthals and Denisophins as we're spreading. Within Africa, while that's happening and before that's happening, how much do we, do we have any evidence of interbreeding between modern humans and other uh, species or subspecies that were in Africa the whole time? Yeah. So finding ancient genomes from groups that were as different as Neanderthals sort of allowed geneticists to understand the template, right? What, do, what does it look like when you mix with a very different group? That led to the discovery of Denisovans, right? We'd have an ancient genome from Denisova Cave that we identified and said, oh, we've got interbreeding from this group. But in fact, if you look at populations that have the highest degree of Denisovan mixture, what we see today is not, is not exactly that group. We see groups that are related to the Denisovan genome. And finding those segments of genome, that's a statistical process. We can now look at genomes and say, does an individual have input from a group that we haven't sampled yet? Geneticists have done this in Africa, and they also have a limited number of ancient genomes in Africa. Those ancient genomes are mostly less than 10,000 years old, and only a few of them are up to 20,000 years old. We don't have super ancient genomes from Africa yet, but the ones that we have do give us a picture of population structure before the events of the last few thousand years. And so that lets us look a little further back and just give an idea of how diverse were groups before the spread of agriculture, the spread of pastoral herding and other kinds of things that have really caused mixture of African populations in the last few thousand years. As you look at those ancient genomes and living people, we see signs that there was differentiation of African populations that goes back further in time than 150,000 years. Mm. The, the today largest genetic differences between populations in Africa are between Southern African hunting gathering peoples and the peoples of the rest of the continent. Those seem to go back a few hundred thousand years, maybe two or 300,000 years. Before that, 
there were other groups. There was diversity in Africa and African populations prehistorically mixed with those groups. We see those echoes in the genomes of today's Africans. What we don't know is how separate those groups were. Were the groups like Neanderthals, where they had a deep, deep history on their own? Mm-hmm. Or are we looking at a structured population that just was always interbreeding, but lasted for a long time? Mm-hmm. My colleague here at the University of Wisconsin, Aaron Ragsdale, is you know has got a great analysis that suggests that African populations just have this deep structure. It goes back a million years, and it was because they were a large, diverse, and successful population that had different regional groups. Mm-hmm. Um, other scientists, David Reich's group has looked at this and said, there were actually these really different branches, and they were as separated as Neanderthals were, and they survived until recently and, and interbred. We don't know yet what the answer to this is. You know, mm-hmm. as as someone who knows these methods and looks at it, I'm like, you know, what we really need is ancient genomes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in the end, I think we'll have some. But but for the moment, this question of how did the modern human population, right? How did it coalesce? How did it come together two hundred thousand years ago, three hundred thousand years ago? The answer is we're not sure. It was complicated. We know that there was regional variation. There were different groups. What we don't know is what the structure of those groups was, how widespread they were, where they lived, and um, and what the interactions between them were like. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing that's kind of fascinating about the genomic stuff, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here. So bef- before genomics was a thing, before we could sequence genomes, you had to dig up bones and look at them. And that's that's sort of what we had to go on, but it sounds like you know genomics is in a place now where we've sequenced enough genomes and we've developed enough statistical tools and studied enough examples of stuff happening, different groups interbreeding and gene flow and and just the evolution of species generally, that if you have an ancient genome or any genome, you can actually look at it, and if there was some kind of interbreeding between two different species or something as different as Neanderthals and humans or Denisovans, you can actually see that in genomes before we've discovered that other species. That's exactly right. Yeah. I would say the other thing that I think people don't appreciate very much is we used to have the idea um, when I was a student, this idea was still around that if you found a feature of a skull or a tooth or a bone that was really distinct and unique, like, oh, this shaped thing I've never seen before. And you saw it in two things, that that was really strong evidence that those two things are connected. Like we kind of had the idea that looking at it today, right? I can say, we kind of had the idea that bones worked like genes. Hmm. And if you found something that was strange enough, yeah. it was a really clear sign that there was a connection. Today, we understand that there are no genes that relate in any straightforward way to features like this. That when we see something strange in a bone and something strange in another bone, there's no genetic pathway that gets us from here to there. <laughs> and so as a result, we I, I sort of have a skepticism about what we understand from the fossil record today. <laughs> we We understand that Fossil morphology, but the morphology of today's humans 
when there's a feature in your skull that's different from mine, that difference may be the product of 20 or 50 or 100 different genes. And there's something like the central limit principle when you're comparing all these different genes with each other, that it's very hard to predict the outcomes of combinations of things. Mm -hmm. So two things that look weird on two bones probably are just two unique events <laughs> and not a direct connection. So genes are vastly better at finding the importance of small fractions of connection. When I today can talk about myself having 1.8% Neanderthal genetics, right? that's a measurement that I could never make from morphology. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to talk about 1.8% morphology, I'm, I'm in la-la land because morphology is somehow relying on the combination of hundreds of different genes. And I can't measure 1.8% difference between with genes I can. So it's given us a language that's enabled us to talk about the connections of things and the existence of groups based on small fractions of evidence that we could never have had with morphology. Um, and that's given us a new, I think, way of thinking about evolution. We now today are thinking about the connections between things where they might only mix 5% of the time, but it might be really important at the time that that happened. And with morphology, it's made us much more agnostic. I look at a species like Homo naledi, and I say some of its features look like recent humans. And some of his features look like Australopithecus and some of them look like very ancient hominids. And is it meaningful? Should I interpret that as saying that there's a mixture of things? Not necessarily, right? It's more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. At the time that our lineage was first migrating out of Africa and in the early days of radiating outward deeper into Europe, deeper into Asia and so forth, how many other species of homo were they encountering and what were what can you kind of give a survey of some of the the major ones here's what we know we know that they encountered neanderthals and neanderthals at the time that these encounters were happening were diverse neanderthals included populations that had a history that went back well more than 100,000 years and maybe 200,000 from each other so as they're hitting Neanderthals, they're hitting groups that are as diverse as the Africans that they've, you know, evolved with. Mm -hmm. um, we've got ancient genomes from Neanderthals that show that there are very distinct lineages of them that had some interactions, but not a ton, right? That were, that retained distinctiveness, that lived in different places that probably had pretty different lives. When they reached South Asia, these migrants, we don't know who they ran into. We, they might've run into some group of Neanderthals that lived there. They might've run into Denisovans at that stage. We know that when they entered into Eastern parts of Asia, they met Denisovans that lived there that were similar to the Altai Denisova population, the population whose bones we found at Denisova cave. But they also met other groups that were genetically related to Denisovans more than anybody else, but that had diverged from Denisovans 200,000, 
300,000 or longer ago. Those groups today, geneticists have taken to calling Denisovan because the one example that we have that's closest to them is the Denisova 3 genome. So we say, well, these are Denisovans, but they're Denisovans that are more different from each other than any living people in the world are from each other. Hmm. They're Denisovans that lived in di very different places, right? The ones that we found their bones, they live in, in places like the Altai Mountains in Tibet. These live in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia, right? So they're living in different habitats. They've been separated for 300,000 years or more in some cases. They were pretty different. By the time they reach the islands of Indonesia, they run into island species that we've recognized today from their teeth and bones that were probably isolated at that time. Um, Homo floresiensis on Flores is one of these. Homo luzonensis on Luzon in the Philippines is one of these. There may have been others. Certainly there were hominins on Sulawesi. We've got their archaeology, but we haven't found their physical remains yet. So we don't know if this is yet another one of these groups or if it is Denisovans or, or who it was. Homo erectus as we understand it, continued to exist in Indonesia, on Java, until well after 100,000 years ago. We don't know if the emerging modern human populations ran into this population or not, mm -hmm. um, but they were there close to that time, and it could well be that they ran into each other. How um, Approximately how different was Homo erectus from the, those humans sake uh, compared to the Neanderthals? It's not super clear. Um, the Homo erectus populations that they ran into, uh, the latest surviving ones that, that we have great cranial evidence from 100,000 years ago, they have brain sizes that are close to the modern human range, up to around 1,200 to 1,300 cubic centimeters. So, so they had evolved bigger brains. Um, skeletally, we know very little about their post- cranial skeleton. So I, we've got a couple of tibiae and a femur. So I can't comment super well on, on how different their postcranial skeleton was. Their skulls looked pretty different. When these skulls were discovered, some anthropologists called them tropical Neanderthals. They imagined them as something like the Neanderthals in Indonesia. And while that's not literally true, it maybe gives a flavor to the kind of anatomical difference we're talking about. Um, they're certainly more different from us than Neanderthals in a genetic sense. Um, but how much more different is not super clear. Um, okay, so what have we gotten up to now in terms of populations and species? There's three of Denisovans. There's the Neanderthals, which are complicated. There's multiples of those. Um, and there's Homo floresiensis, Homo luzonensis, and there's uh, Homo erectus, very probably. Right? We're talking about eight and maybe more. Um, and that's just Eurasia. In Africa, we do know that Homo naledi persisted until at least 250,000 years ago or so. We don't know whether it became extinct at that time or whether there may have been other species that continue to exist. This evidence that we have about interbreeding and population structure that 
whose echoes remain in today's populations, suggests that some groups that were pretty different did persist um, until the late Pleistocene. So until after 100,000 years ago. Um, I'd say if I looked at the world at this time, let's say 70,000 years ago, when modern humans, that group is diversifying and spreading into Eurasia and asked, who is there in the world at that time? There's a really large number of very diverse populations of hominids, some of which probably share ancestors most recently more than one and a half million years ago. Others of which, like the Neanderthals and Denisovans, share ancestors like 700,000 years ago. And, and some of which are anatomically, Homo floresiensis, Homo naledi, really very different from us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so 70,000-ish years ago, if, if you could if you could get in the time machine and go back and just look around the world, you know, many people have had the experience of going to the zoo or something and looking at the chimpanzees or the gorillas or just monkeys or whatever. And even though they're obviously different from us, you know, I've seen many times in my life someone notices, you know, the skull shape of an infant chimpanzee, or they just notice some aspect of their behavior and they have this sort of moment of, you know, wow, like we really are cousins of these things in in a deep sense. If you went back in a time machine 70,000 years ago, you would have seen things that were clearly different than you and me, and yet even more uncannily similar that we're walking around on two legs. And we're talking about, I mean, what, pro- probably what, millions of individuals in total and a half dozen or more distinct or quasi-distinct species? Yeah, very possibly. And I think actually those interactions, right, we know some of them interbred. <laughs> and so we know those interactions were, you know, the range of interbreeding and interactions of that kind between human groups, right, who speak different languages, who have different cultures, um, f- occupy a full range, right, between people who love each other, have have the same kind of interactions that we wish for our children, right, in in any society, who um, integrate into each other's groups across what must have been language and other cultural barriers, right? Those people, I genuinely believe, I I can't, I don't have the time machine, but I, I believe that they did not see each other as different in that way, right? The kinds of differences that a modern group, as we classify them, would have seen from a Neanderthal group, those differences, the only ones that matter are if they spoke different languages, had different cultures, different expectations, right? They were all hunting and gathering peoples. They were eating the same foods. Neanderthals were hunting, were, were, were cooking grain in, in packets. They lived lives that were fundamentally similar. And where they met, in fact, they may not have noticed anatomical differences. It's totally possible that there were, you know, when they met each other, those encounters were between groups that were largely mixed. Mm -hmm. And so that's one extreme. Keeping in mind that interactions between human groups that involve mating also include violence and aggression and warfare, right, and terrible things. And I imagine that many of these interactions did that as well, mm-hmm. that we're not looking at, you know, a, a Pollyanna of the past, right? This is, they're people, they're complicated, and 
both sides of these interactions saw themselves as as people. Yeah. Um, and I don't think they perceived differences in that way. They also met species that probably had no language or rudimentary mm-hmm. means of vocal communication. The Homo floresiensis, right? I don't imagine that when modern humans met Homo floresiensis, they thought, oh, these are just like us. I imagine that they thought this is something very different. Whether there was any kind of, you know, cross um, interaction, whether they shared cultural information, whether there could have been interbreeding, we don't know yet. We don't have any evidence that relates to it. But certainly these are groups that are more different by far than humans are from Neanderthals. And those interactions may have been, you know, not between people who saw themselves as people. In, um, you know, see, these are all versions of humans uh, that walk around on two feet. Um, and they did a lot of walking because they made it all over the globe. Um, yeah. When, when approximately when and where, I'm, I'm assuming somewhere in Africa, is, is the earliest evidence of um, species of Homo that were exclusively or largely bipedal? When does that come onto the scene? Bipedality is one of the first changes in our evolution. Um, we've got great, great evidence of bipedal hominins that walk in a fundamentally human-like way before 3.8 million years ago. Okay, so um, wow. Okay, so, pretty pretty long. So that long. goes way back. Um, and we know, to, I say way back, right? About a third of our evolution has happened by that time. <laughs> so it took some time. And there were hominins that we identify as, as our close relatives, like Ardipithecus, that did not walk upright like as we do that had a more more ability to be standing upright but did not have the foot anatomy did not have the spine anatomy didn't have the pelvic anatomy that that later hominins do so it took some time but this was actually one of the first big human changes was upright walking our genus homo the earliest evidence of it is about 2.8 million years old and so you know by about a million years or maybe a little more after bipedalism is well established, then we've got our genus. And our genus, the earliest evidence of it, I got to tell you, is not great. We've got a jawbone is the earliest fossil. We've got part of a of an upper jaw that's that's about half a million years younger than that. We have very little evidence about this until about two million years ago. Two million years, the first evidence of Homo erectus is found, actually in South Africa, where I work. And, and from there, Homo erectus becomes a pretty successful species. It spreads into Eurasia, and and mm-hmm. we've got, oh, something different is going on here. So yeah, I think that, yeah, this is worth um, talking about a little bit. So not only did our lineage go out of Africa and radiate everywhere, Homo erectus didn't evolve. It, it also did the same thing, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. After the rise of Homo erectus, and I say after the rise, and then I'm going to say a, a little sort of addendum after that. After the rise of erectus, this seems like a successful model. It seems like it combines a human-like ability to to travel long distances with a little bit bigger brain than had occurred in any earlier hominin, and. And it's clear that they are relying on tools. They have smaller teeth than, than most earlier hominins. Um, 
these become hunting and gathering populations. And that uses space and they begin to expand through space. And wherever they can adapt to the new ecology, they get. By 1.8 million, we've got great evidence of them in Georgia, in, in the sort of central Eurasia. In After that, by about 1.7 million years, we've got evidence for them in China, evidence for them in Indonesia shortly after that. So they're pretty successful. They spread and that they spread all over Africa. My slight exception to this is that we do have evidence that's earlier in Eurasia. That's stone tool evidence. Homo floresiensis maybe, maybe evolved from an earlier branch of hominins. It's really different from us. And so there's a suspicion that maybe it didn't evolve from erectus. Maybe it came from something earlier. We're now today very interested in the possibility that there are earlier hominins that emerged into Eurasia before erectus. But we haven't found their physical remains yet. And I wouldn't be surprised when we do. Right? I think we will, actually. What remains question is, who's it going to be? Is it going to be some earlier member of Homo, our genus, or could it be something else? And and I don't know yet. Mm -hmm. Stone tool evidence in the last few years has gotten way earlier than it used to be. Our earliest evidence of stone tool making is now 3.3 million years old. That's way before our genus arises. Hmm. And so we do have, I think, a, a reasonable sort of suspicion these days that Australopithecus was more sophisticated than we've given it credit for, that maybe we're going to find that there's an earlier expansion of hominins. And I think it's just a matter of time. I think we are going to find them. Mm -hmm. I mean, that does seem to be a general theme in the history of paleoanthropology and also even more generally that um, in general, as we learn more and more and dig up more bones and discover more things and start inventing technologies to do genome sequencing and just get more information, um, the story of our evolution involves um, you know, our particular modern lineage not being you know quite as unique as we used to think, meaning that things that we thought were just in our lineage actually, well, they were in these older lineages as well, to some extent, at least. Yeah, we have this way of explaining things, which is, you know, in biology, we call this the just so story, right? <laughs> I see that something happened and I know that something else is exists. And so I say, of course, this happened because of this. <laughs> and of course, it's a good way of forming a hypothesis, right? And there's a reason why we do this in evolutionary biology, because when we know a limited number of things, the thing that we should test first is the two things we know. <laughs> and it's not a bad way of approaching science, but it's a bad way of, of approximating reality. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's there's a real tendency for us to say that I know that these two things happened at around the same time, and so they're connected. And what happens again and again is that, oh, actually, evidence for this, I've found it some other time. I found it earlier, or I found it in a different place. And so now I know that they're not connected. Um, and so now I'll look for the next thing that might be connected is the scientific approach. But somehow this idea of a connection never goes away. <laughs> so that that. It is a universal, I think, in evolutionary biology, right? We have these things and we're looking at them and we're saying, well, they should be connected. Somehow the expansion of humans 
should be connected to this volcanic eruption, right? That's a, that's a really common one, right? The Toba volcano eruption 74,000 years ago, huge major event. And 25 years ago, ge- geologists said, this is the biggest eruption that ever happened. Hmm. And modern humans diversified from Africa at around that time. These have to be connected. <laughs> it's taken 25 years knowing that they're not connected <laughs> because the modern humans started diversifying first right, before the <laughs> eruption mm-hmm. um, to, um, to say, um, yeah, but this idea persists. And it's really tempting when you have limited information to do that. One of the... Um... So I'm interested in well, so I'm interested in the evolution of diet, but I'm also just interested more generally in um, sort of the, the, you've mentioned what sound like common themes that um, that happened along all of these different human lineages as they were evolving. So even though they they evolved, you know, there's distinctions between Neanderthals and our lineage and Denisovans and Homo naledi and like all, all of these. There, there were differences between them, but it sound, sounds like there are some general themes, one of them being like, you know, brains tended to get bigger over time and maybe some got bigger than others, but they all tended to get bigger. And another one, it sounds like, is that our teeth change in characteristic ways compared to our non-human ancestors. So what can, what, what can you say about the themes um, in the evolution of of our dental anatomy and structure and what that means about obviously there's lots of diversity between human groups past and present in terms of what they eat that's that's one of i think the features of of humans is our ability to to sort of have different diets and adapt in that kind of way but what are some themes in the evolution of of teeth and diet that sort of hold true across the different branches of homo that distinguish us from our uh, deeper ancestors it's a great question. Um, and it's probably the one area that would drive you crazy more than most um, <laughs> in, in human evolution. The reason is because we used to have this very, well, we, I would say it, our field in the 1950s and 60s had a very rational idea that humans today have smaller teeth than our near ancestors, like Homo erectus. There's been a trend toward reducing teeth in the human lineage from those earlier relatives of ours. Also, there are relatives of ours, Australopithecus, that had big teeth compared to ours, big molar and premolar teeth especially. And a branch of those hominins, we called robust Australopithecus at that time, today we call them Paranthropus, had mega big teeth had big teeth like you've never seen. The, the largest paranthropus have second molars that are almost the diameter, certainly bigger than a nickel, and almost the diameter of a quarter. <laughs> so they had big teeth. And there was this really logical idea that you could kind of, that the teeth are adaptive to the diet that they ate. So the robust hominids were eating lots of vegeta- vegetation. They were eating stuff that had low energy density. They were they were chewing on vegetables like gorillas do. Mm-hmm. And that the smaller teeth were characteristic of the smarter hominins that are hunting. They're eating lots of meat. That's a super logical idea. It was called the dietary hypothesis. And it 
was what you know you taught in the 1990s. Right? Everybody knew the robust hominids should eat all the vegetables, and the, the homo should eat all the meat, and the evolution of homo should be tied to meat eating. There are a couple of challenges for that hypothesis. Right. One of them is that chimpanzees, which do hunt a little bit, pretty much eat vegetable stuff, have small teeth. Their teeth are like humans. Mm. Their teeth do not look like earlier hominins. In fact, the early hominins, Australopithecus, there's no other species of primates that seems to have this adaptation of having really big premolar and molar teeth in not a giant body size. Gorillas have big molar and premolar teeth. They eat lots of vegetables, but they're giant. <laughs> and their teeth have these, these shearing crests on them. They look like scissor action to chop up vegetable material. The earlier hominids did not. They have flat teeth that look like they could just grind something up. So anthropologists knew that you couldn't explain this in, with a gorilla-like diet. They must have been eating nuts, other kinds of hard things that were very difficult to, to break down and required these big teeth with large grinding areas. Right? That was state-of-the-art 1990s. The world has changed since then in two important ways. One way is a better appreciation of the diversity of hominids. We know today that there seem to be some robust hominins that have smaller teeth. <laughs> we know that there are species of Homo that have big teeth. Homo erectus does have some individuals with super big teeth, but other species that don't have big brains don't seem to rely totally on meat eating that have small teeth, like Homo floresiensis, I said super small teeth, Homo naledius small teeth. Um, so you've got this diversity. Within our genus, the small teeth don't go along with the big brains and don't seem to go along in a straightforward way with the great tools. Um, in the earlier hominids, you've got this diversity. You've got Australopithecus sediba that looks like Australopithecus in most respects, but it's got small teeth. Um, and you've got some Paranthropus that have small teeth. So you've got this sort of weird, things don't go together the way they should. The other thing that has happened is the development of technologies that give us direct insight into what they ate. One of those technologies is microscopy that enables us to look at the wear on the teeth and quantify it in terms of what foods actually are mm -hmm. doing to the teeth. So if you spend a, if you spend a lifetime eating mostly nuts versus mostly leaves versus mostly meat, exactly. it wears the teeth. The chomping on the nuts and the, and the stripping the leaves and the eating the, the beef jerky all leave different signs. And in fact, robust hominins, the ones with the biggest teeth, have the greatest diversity of signs. Mm. Some of them, Boisei in East Africa, they've got super smooth wear on their teeth that looks like they're eating plants like gorillas eat or something. <laughs> they're not eating lots of nuts and, and hard to chew things. In South Africa, they are. Homo kind of is. They're eating lots of different things. Um, but none of them look like they're especially focusing on meat or something like that. Mm -hmm. Stable isotopes in the teeth also tell us what where their foods are coming from. And they're telling us that actually all these hominins seem to eat kind of the same ratio of different foods. There are outliers. Neanderthals eat a lot of meat. 
compared to vegetable material. We can tell that from their trophic level from stable isotopes of nitrogen, in fact. But within Africa, looks like most hominins eat kind of the same composition of foods, except this Boise eye, the big, the big toothed one. What, what is that, that combination? It looks like about 25 to 30% from C4 plants, warm season grasses, and something like 75% from cold season grasses and forbs. So yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of like an American diet if you take out the corn. Hmm. <laughs> we get a lot of corn, right? A lot of our input is coming from maize um, for corn syrup and other kinds of things. But if we set that aside kind of what we eat hmm. um and that's true in in of all these hominids they're eating sort of the same composition of stuff there's relatively little distinction between them in terms of what we find in their dental calculus um there's some interesting ones australopithecus sediba seems to have a cambium the inner bark of trees fragments in their calculus um but aside from that our evidence of what they ate doesn't reinforce the difference that we see in their teeth. Mm -hmm. It is not clear to us right now why that is. Hmm. There's so a, either, a either really there's some other, there's just more we to be understood about how diet relates to the t structure of the teeth, or I guess mm -hmm. potentially another explanation is non-food uses of teeth or something. Some of this is totally possible. Yes. Um, the reduction of teeth in the human lineage, right? Homo erectus has smaller teeth than Australopithecus. Um, early members of like Homo, early ancestors of Neanderthals have smaller, have bigger teeth than later Neanderthals. Early humans in Africa have bigger teeth than later humans, modern humans, right? So if we look at those things, I think it's fair to say that this is because of an increased extra oral processing of food. We are using tools and cooking foods, and that's relaxing selection on big teeth. Mm. And that's probably pretty safe. And I suppose uh, I suppose a corollary of that, if, if you're relaxing selection on big teeth, um, if you simply have relaxed selection on something, um, it's sort of free to vary in a number of ways. Yep. Yep. Yes. And there's a balance, of course, which is that our teeth do other things besides uh, besides chew. Mm -hmm. and, and while tool use is one of them, an important one that comes into play with Neanderthals, we see lots of evidence of tool use with teeth being used as tools. Um, the other one that that is important that is undervalued is, is erupting. <laughs> they have to come into your mouth. Mm. And that does create problems um, if there's a malocclusion, if they come into your mouth wrong, or if they're the wrong size to fit into the mouth that you have. These are problem things. And the reduction of third molars in our evolution and the loss of third molars among many people um, who will never develop them probably is a consequence of reduction in jaw size. So you have this kind of whether there's selection that's saying don't make the teeth, these teeth are problems, or whether it's just that jaws are under selection to be smaller and that's resulting in fewer teeth because the lamina that leads to the tooth buds is reducing in size hmm. whichever process it is and i that's selection process versus neutral process both of them end up in the same place which is that today there are people who don't have third molars hmm. 
a question that's a, a little bit random that's coming to mind today um like i had i had braces when i was a teenager because my mm-hmm. teeth were not perfectly straight and we spent a lot of money on braces and this is a very common thing today when you look at old skulls of ancient humans how often do they have crooked teeth i'll just ask you that so people are horrified by this malocclusion is something that came into populations largely with agriculture mm. when people became sedentary were eating agricultural foods which which in large part involves cooking things into a mash um malocclusion comes in a major way before that people who were eating wild foods including today's hunting and gathering peoples right who eat wild foods they do not have malocclusions their teeth fit together perfectly hmm. there are obviously some exceptions and people do cultural things to teeth today sometimes people file their teeth they remove teeth sometimes your mouth can it's plastic it can change your tooth's positions just like braces are are exploiting plasticity when you put forces onto teeth, your jaw will respond to those forces and the teeth positions will move. This happens with any cultural process that affects the teeth. But when we look at ancient humans and hominins that ate wild foods, their teeth fit together in the way that, that nature intended. <laughs> they don't have malocclusions. Wow. And that's, I mean, I, I suppose that's simply just do this is for biomechanical reasons are uh, totally biomechanical yeah your teeth you, you don't think about it but every time you bite on something there's force that's being yeah. applied and those forces tend to correct the position of the teeth they tend to put the teeth back where they belong and a malocclusion can emerge if one of the cusps of your teeth gets worn down wrong and now when you're biting down, it's actually putting pressure to force this tooth outwards or something like that, that causes malocclusion. Hmm. So dentists are always telling you, don't grind your teeth. It's going to cause a malocclusion. This is why, because your teeth, their form is actually well adapted to put them where they belong. (laughs) It's a system that's not only programmed in advance, it relies upon the feedback that comes from chewing as your teeth are erupting. And if you have one tooth that's missing and the other tooth is erupting, it'll erupt too far because it, because that process relies on the, the correction that's the force that's being applied as it erupts. Hmm. And I, so I suppose the reason that, that we start getting uh, crooked teeth after we become sedentary agriculturalists, uh, not only do we start just eating different foods, we're making porridges and things like this that just have different physical properties. But when I think of modern modern humans like us today like when i look at what we do with little babies we give them soft things to drink and soft things to chew on and i suppose that's a naturally going to be a factor in in their tooth development as well i'll tell you what if you gave your kids now people are going to watch the podcast and they're going to do this and i'm going to say i'm not a physician or a dentist and don't do what i'm telling you (laughs) but if you gave your children chew toys that you give to dogs like a kong and made them work on it their teeth would be straighter (laughs) <laughs> the fact is that what why is it like when you look at people today in magazines who are smiling you want to see their front teeth on the top you don't want to see their front teeth on the bottom right if they're giving you this smile there's something wrong that's happening 
right? It's like, that's, that's not right, right? That's, that's not cosmetic. That's not what American orthodontists are aiming for. Why did this, that's not a natural bite. A natural bite has the front teeth meeting in the middle because they actually wear against each other. And you can actually sever things with your front teeth because they're wearing there, right? We engineer with orthodontia today an overbite. The front teeth are in front of the bottom teeth. That overbite is something that emerged in the course of history, largely from use of silverware. Hmm. Using utensils to eat with and not clamping down with your teeth on things to, to chew them this way actually causes your teeth to erupt in a different way. So much of what we recognize as, as natural about our appearance, right? There's hardly anything that is as much of a social signal as smiling to somebody and showing them the, the fronts of your, of, your top, of your top teeth, right? Is something that is actually highly cultural and emerged because of the side effect of these cultural practices. What do um what do hunter gatherer type people give their infants when their teeth are erupting? What what do they give them to chew on? Leather, <laughs> <laughs> which is also I, I learned right what what my grandparents gave to their kids. Right today you have these sort of plastic friendly toys, but in fact. A hundred years ago, leather. <laughs> that's what they gave them. Wow. That's yeah, that's fascinating. So um I, I wanna uh I wanna get back to diet. So you've told mm-hmm. us some fascinating things about uh diet. Are, are there any um so you, we have technology now where we can basically just look with microscopes. We can look at wear and tear. Um, are we also, to what extent are we able to uh, you mentioned I think this to some degree, um, but how much precision do we have in telling from like little bits of stuff that are trapped in the enamel and things exactly what an ancient human was eating? Well, there's two elements to that, right? One is, can we identify it accurately? And that side of it is, yeah, actually people who study this do a remarkable job identifying tiny pieces of things. Um, And we know things today like Neanderthals used medicinal plants like yarrow that are not nutritionally valuable and and because they've got the signs of that there. You can also identify the chemistry of smoke and the chemistry of burned fat and things like that from calculus. So the sensitivity of the method is amazing. You find things, you know that this was in the mouth, it was ingested. The other side, however, is do you find everything, right? Are you getting a picture of a particular episode, a moment? Or are you getting some kind of average that tells you how, what somebody ate over the course of their life? On that score, it's very bad. We don't have any way of assessing, am I getting an average picture or am I getting something extreme? Am I getting something unusual? With some other approaches, stable isotope sampling, for instance, you can actually get some of that. Like today, the really cool stuff is being done by sectioning a tooth and by doing isotopic and elemental analysis at a microscopic level across its growth lines, which can give you information about a day that an individual lived. And you can say, when they were forming this layer of enamel, 
they were exposed to this element in their natural habitat. We can, we know today for a few ancient hominins, exactly when they stopped being breastfed. We know for a couple of hominins that they were exposed to lead at a certain moment of their lives. Hmm. For one pre-hominin, for one ancient ape, we know the pattern of rainfall across the time that they developed their tooth. Hmm. <laughs> so there's amazing things that you can get from that kind of thing. And it does enable you for a, for a window of someone's life to talk about not just extremes, but some kind of a- average, but it's a limited amount of data you get from it. You're not getting what kind of plant you ate. You're getting what was the input of this kind of carbon from a range of different plants. Last question about diet, <laughs> at least for our lineage. Um, for the humans that were leaving Africa or the ones that had recently left Africa, but still before the dawn of agriculture, what do we know about what they were eating? Um, we know actually quite a lot now. Um, and that's a complicated time. It's a complicated time because it corresponds with the cultural changes that archeologists identify as the later stone age. Um, so before let's say before 50,000 years ago, um, most of, of the cultural evidence that we have from Africa is, is aligned with a, a tradition we call Middle Stone Age. Middle Stone Age is more or less equivalent in terms of the tools that are being made as uh, Neanderthal tools are in Europe. And later Stone Age involves a reduction of the size of tools and increase in the amount of complicated um, compound tools that are being made. People are using micro blades and putting them on projectiles and this kind of thing. They start using poison arrows, uh, that kind of thing in Africa. By that time, the lifestyles that you're seeing among traditional African groups are pretty much what we see in ethnographic groups that, that anthropologists have studied for the last hundred years that are hunting and gathering groups. And they're diverse. People living in different parts of Africa, eating different foods, using specialized technologies to do it. Um, so despite the, that, despite that diversity, are, are there any themes mm-hmm. in terms of, say, how the macronutrient composition, the ratios of protein to carbs to fats, um, differs from, say, um, our ape relatives? Yeah, uh, we know a good bit now from ethnography and from and from physiological measurements of what difference it makes. Hunting and gathering peoples, you know, that that have been measured by anthropologists and Herman Ponser has done amazing work on this. He's somebody that I would read his work and talk with him about it. Um, looking at hunting and gathering peoples, what's going on with their with their diet, with their energy intake? What's going on is that we use energy. We right, <laughs> human foragers use energy in short bursts with much greater intensity than other primates tend to. So we'll gather the same amount of food, but we do it in a shorter time. And that makes our time budget very different from other species. It makes our pattern of work versus rest very different. Um, And that has consequences for the way that people are gathering and for the foods that they're acquiring. The macronutrient composition and that kind of thing the major innovation in human foraging groups is an increased consumption of meat compared to primates, um, including chimps and bonobos. 
So humans tend to work in shorter periods with more intensity. And that means that we're pulsing our energy in shorter units. And that gives us huge amounts of free time. We're using that free time socially. So that changes our energy budget. In terms of macronutrients, the biggest difference between human foragers and chimpanzees, bonobos, and gorillas certainly, is the human intake of meat. And that's important in every hunting and gathering society. Also, humans intake more, more honey and more starchy foods, more underground storage organs. Those vary a lot between groups, right? Look at different hunting gathering groups. They, those resources vary, but they're present in greater degrees in almost all human groups compared to chimps and bonobos. So we're eating less leafy roughage type stuff than chimps and bonobos do. We're eating more starchy sugar and then meat. And that's sort of fundamental, shared among all the human foragers that anybody studied anywhere. I want to um, spend probably the rest of the time talking about Homo naledi stuff. Mm -hmm. um, for those listening, so I talked to Lee Berger uh, last year, um, who John works with. So if you want sort of more background on how that project got started and, and where it is, and, and a lot of the um, a lot of the facts there, um, we we talked about that. Um, John, I would like you to kind of bring us up to speed on what's happened in the last year or two. Um, and I believe I'll just name drop here. The, the name of the documentary, I believe, is Cave of Bones on Netflix. Um, it's yep. really cool. So check it out um, if you can. Yep. So yeah. give us a very concise summary of like, what is this Homo naledi discovery? Yeah. So fundamentally, we've been working with Homo naledi for the last decade. And initially, we found these bones in a cave. And they're in a very difficult to reach series of chambers in the cave where I cannot actually physically go. Our team is super skilled underground. Now they include some of the most experienced underground caving specialists in the world, certainly in the Southern hemisphere. Um, but the, the key constraint is this very small passage, the, the chute um, that, that we call it, that is 18 centimeters or seven and a half inches wide. Um, so it's, it's a tough place to get. We found the bones of abundant individuals. Uh, we reported when we found them in 2015, uh, we reported um, 15 individuals at least. We know today that there are many more than that. Um, and we found them in sort of a puzzling situation where there are lots of bones of this species and no bones from any other kind of animal in any, in any numbers. Um, and some of the skeletal remains of, of Naledi in this chamber were articulated, and some of them were mixed together with different bones from different individuals. Our dig was very small at that time, so we didn't know exactly what this meant. After that, we found their bones in another part of the cave, a place we call the Lesseti chamber, the first place called the Dinaledi chamber. The Lesseti chamber had the skeleton of one individual with a few parts from a couple of others, and this skeleton was in a niche in the wall of the cave, and we were very puzzled by this. It was very clear that this species was able to use large parts of this cave system. These places are far apart underground. They're more than 120 meters from each other. And, and they were dark and scary. And <laughs> when I say scary, I mean that the passages are narrow and they're hard to get to. Um, and we know that they've been that way since the species was using the cave. So, so the question is, what's going on, right? 
from the beginning, we could rule out many reasons why the bones were there. We could rule out that carnivores had been involved in, in bringing the bodies there. There are no signs of that, no evidence of carnivore activity on the bones. And that's pretty we, obvious when it's true, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, there can, when you have one bone, a carnivore bite mark, you might, you know, be, be subtle, but with whole skeletons and this sort of thing, it was, you know, you could say, no, there's no carnivores doing this. It would be the weirdest carnivore in the world that only preyed on humans. Right. So, so there's something very strange about it. Um, at the same time, we could show that water had not carried the bodies there. The, the sedimentology of the cave was inconsistent with having been formed by water washing into the cave or, or anything like that. So we could say, you know, it sort of looks like Naledi got themselves there. Our hypothesis was maybe they're depositing bodies. Maybe they're bringing bodies in the cave and, and dumping them. Um, and this is some kind of mortuary space. That was a little bit controversial. Right. Other archaeologists looked at that and said, well, we've never seen this with anything like a creature that has this brain size before. Their brains are a third the size of today's humans. Um, we're skeptical when we see Neanderthals doing this. You know, we think that this is something that's very cultural. It's very hard to identify. And um, and to be quite honest, we'd be happier if it was carnivores. <laughs> we got a lot of that um, over the past Five years, our team has been working to expand our knowledge of the Dinaletti part of this cave, and we have found a number of things. We found parts of bodies, uh, a skull of a child in one case, that are 40 meters further than the chute, places where they couldn't get unless somebody took them there. Um, and so that's part of what you know sort of is factoring into our thinking. But in particular, in 2017, our team found a bone concentration and brought it out of the cave. They packed it into caving bags, wrapped it in plaster, plaster jacketed it like a dinosaur bone and brought it out of the cave. And we're studying scans of that now. And the scans show us that there's a body inside of it. And this body appears to have been buried. And in a second excavation area in 2018, we uncovered bone a bone concentration that included many parts of one skeleton in what seemed like an anatomical order. We stopped and left that there and began to study it. We think that this is also a burial. We think that holes were dug and bodies were placed in them. In one sense, that's not super different, right? We have already said, we think that Naledi is using this as some kind of mortuary space, and that's why the bones are there. But in another sense, this is a step more complicated. We're saying that Naledi was digging holes and burying bodies. And that implies that there was something very unique and special about this space to them, that they were returning to it and using it, that it was part of some kind of cultural activity. Um, and so that's what the, the documentary, The Cave of Bones, mm -hmm. is describing. Uh, my book with Lee, Cave of Bones, is also sort of describing these discoveries. But it's what right now is engaging us, right? Trying to understand what it means for another species like this to have a culture and what other signs of it we might recognize. Mm -hmm. So if all of this is true, if if they do have a culture that includes going to a cave system like this on purpose, burying the dead and all of the things that would entail in terms of their minimum 
cognitive repertoire required to do all those things. Have you seen indications of A, fire, because they would have needed to light the way somehow? And what does that look like? And B, I would imagine it's plausible. I mean, if, if, if they were truly using these as burials, they truly had a conception of life and death in, in the sort of modern sense, I guess. Um, I would imagine that they would have done things to mark the cave or do things in the cave other than merely cover up the dead bodies. Yeah. Any evidence of that type of thing? Yeah. So I'll start with the second one first. We have in the Dinaletti chamber a couple of areas that we think are engraved that have lines on the wall of the cave that seem to form patterns. Um, we're, we have described those in a manuscript and we now have a team that is investigating what they can say about them. Um, it is possible that these are intentional, that there's a sort of pattern that's been made that's marking a space. The markings that we see, the patterns appear to be geometric right? In the sense of there are lines that intersect with each other. There are shapes like triangles and ladders, and maybe that's something that they're expressing, but that's all we can say at this stage, right? We're not looking at Lascaux with horses or something like Mm -hmm. that. We're looking at at lines that seem like they're made. Relatively simple geometric patterns. Would you say it's conclusive or that there's strong evidence that they are of human or that, that they were Homo naledi put those there, or is that still controversial? They're in a space where we only have Homo naledi's remains. And so that, you know, puts the first hypothesis is that naledi put them there. Um, the We have no evidence for any other species, including recent humans, having been in that space. And we have a list of all the people that we know of that have been in that chamber. So, mm-hmm. so we could say this is not a trivial space for humans to have been in. We have no evidence that humans were there. And what we have is abundant evidence that Naledi was there. So mm-hmm. that that's our hypothesis. That being said, working with evidence of this kind is very challenging. Um, it's not like a bone where you have some sort of chemical test you can do. Um, the dating of cave art, the placing of it with ancient populations of any kind relies on a lot of luck. You have to have natural cave changes that leave isotopic signatures that you can test and study. Mm -hmm. And we don't know if we're going to have that. We have some of the best experts in the world on the team who are going to find out. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the moment, all I can say is I've got lines on on the wall of a cave that are really interesting that are over bodies of this ancient species. Yeah, (laughs) And, And it seems like it's not a coincidence, but... Yeah, okay. That makes perfect sense. The last thing I want to ask you about that. I mean, super. I I saw the the Cave of Bones documentary. Mm -hmm. Super exciting, super intriguing. Um, It certainly does. It's hard to imagine how else something like that would have gotten there. And this was part of the documentary where, um, you know, I wasn't sure how much of this is the filmmakers. Doing things without uh, having full expertise um, or, or whatever, but there's this part where they kind of show you pictures of these engravings, mm-hmm. and they sure do look like something something like a human being probably made. But then it showed pictures of what looked like basically the same types of things in completely different parts of the world that were apparently made by our lineage or Neanderthals. So, mm-hmm. is that part how how true is that? What can you tell us about that? 
it's absolutely true that there are engravings all over the world that have this kind of character to them that have intersecting lines that make basic geometric shapes. And, uh, you know, we have colleagues who are, you know, coming at this from a neuroscience or psychology point of view who suggest this is maybe fundamental. Maybe there's something about our visual processing that makes these kinds of things really salient to our nervous system so that we make them uh, so that, you know, there's, you know, it doesn't have to be a, you know, subtle communication across these places. It's just saying there's something about the human brain that these kinds of shapes are, you know, they, they draw attention to themselves for us. Um, I think it's plausible, or certainly it's true that we see these shapes again and again. Um, I also, I'm, I'm known in our, in our team as, as the skeptic who says, if you're going to make something out of lines, it's going to end up looking like this. <laughs> so in, in, in some sense, Right. If you're going to make lines and they intersect with each other, they will look like this. Um, but that doesn't detract from the fact that somebody intentionally making lines is working with a visual pattern of some kind. And and if they're making them and invest some kind of energy in them to engrave them on a rock surface, that probably indicates that it's striking some chord within them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably what we're seeing across these different populations. Mm -hmm. And I mean, my, I, this is just, I'm just giving you my, my pure speculation, my thought. My first thought when I saw this and I was watching the documentary, I was like, do the number of lines match the number of bodies you found? It's a great question. I don't know the answer to that because we don't necessarily know what the number of bodies is going to end up being. Um, <laughs> we We have so far uncovered the remains of of more than 28 and probably something like 30 individuals in the different parts of the system. I do not think that this is anywhere near the minimum. I think, in fact, we're going to find that there are many more. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I don't know what to, I don't know what to expect. Fire. Um, what does the evidence for fire look like? Um, and, and we have quite, yeah, this is a great question. We have a lot of evidence now of charcoal and fire throughout the system. Um, and the problem with fire is similar to the problem with engravings. It's very difficult to authenticate that this is coming from the same time as a hominin that was occupying this space. Um, you know, fire is one of those things that archaeologists are always very, I would say, um, rigorous about. They want to make sure that they know that the context of carbonized wood or charcoal in sites is coming from the same kind of context that you have other evidence of behavior, ancient tools or something like that. We have no evidence of tools of any kind in association with Naledi bones other than one possible artifact in this burial in the plaster jacket. So we don't have cave surfaces that have lots and lots of tools in them. We don't think on this basis, right? This is the evidence for it. We don't think that Naledi was living in the parts of the cave where they found their bodies. We think that they were living in, if, if they were living in any parts of the cave, they were much closer to the entrances and we don't have archeological material from those places at this time. So we've got a lot of charcoal. We have been working we have some charcoal from excavations and we will know the age of it. I do not know the age of it yet. And so what I can say is 
for people that you know want to know, was Naledi using fire to get in these spaces? I've got a lot of evidence that there was fire. What I don't know for sure, I can't put it into the hands of Naledi with any kind of chemical method yet that tells us how old it was. And it may be that we never will. It may be that, mm-hmm. that that's just not going to happen. Um, but I'm hopeful uh, because we do have fire evidence in contexts where I know that we will have an age. I think that we're going to know a lot more about the chronology of the cave system and how Naledi may have been using it as we continue to work. How old are these bones and what are the prospects of recovering DNA? The bone material that we have, the dates that we have on Dinaledi material, which is which is a hominin teeth, right? So we know it's Naledi, is between 335,000 and 241,000 years old. That is 10 times the age of the oldest DNA in Africa that has ever been sequenced. So we may be some time before we have DNA evidence. It may be that DNA is not going to be preserved. There is DNA evidence from sites in Spain that goes back to as early as 430,000 years. So it's not outside the realm of possibility, but we're in a chemical situation in terms of preservation. It's much warmer than mm. the cold caves of Europe. Um, it's, so it's po- hot possible, but we cannot bank on it. It's possible. I, I, I'm very hopeful. Our, we have attempted, we have done chemical testing to find out whether there's likely DNA preservation. In the bone that we have tested, there is not. So that's where we stand. We do have a team that's working on protein analysis. Um, and uh, Palesa Madube and uh, Enrico Capolini, who are at the University of Copenhagen, are working on protein analysis from teeth of Naledi. And we are going to have protein data from the teeth. So that gives us some biochemistry. With that kind of preservation, it's somewhat more hopeful that there may be DNA that we will recover someday, um, but it may take some technological changes before that happens. What do uh, Naledi's teeth look like? They, they're they strikingly human-like um, if you don't know tooth anatomy. They're <laughs> about the size, the molar teeth, the premolars, and their, and their incisors are about the size of human teeth. Um, they're very white and nice-looking teeth. And um, the the size differences are very minor. Um, they're, they're, their third molars are bigger than their others and bigger than yours. Um, but otherwise, size is not very different between our teeth and theirs. Their morphology is different. Their premolars, we would never, if I found a premolar like that in a human today, I would think that this person is somehow a throwback from Australopithecus times. <laughs> just that their, their teeth morphology takes us back to very earlier, you know, hominins that lived more than uh, one, one and a half million years ago. What, um, so given, you know, everything's sort of remarkable about this, but, you know, you've got multiple skeletons where you've got um, lots of the skeleton. Um, yeah. So, you know, as you know, and as listeners may or may not know, right, The if you look at all of paleoanthropology, there's so many examples where, you know, our, our evidence of something is one jawbone or, you know, yeah. whatever. Um, I imagine you have males and females, and I imagine you have quite an age, um, age range here. What what kind of uh, demographic uh, sample do you have? We have uh, every age represented from infants 
um, you know, including one very near birth, um, all the way up to the oldest adults that existed in Naledi, the individuals whose teeth are worn down onto the roots. We don't know what age that is. Um, we are working now to understand the pace of dental development, and that's going to tell us more about the age. Um, we've got some preliminary results on that. And so we will know more soon about how long childhood lasted and how old children were. And with adults, when we talk about Neanderthals, we tend to say, you know, I think the oldest Neanderthals that we have may be in their 60s, but most of them, you know, more than half were dead before 30. Um, and it may very well be the case, more than half that reached adulthood were dead before 30. So it may it's likely the case with Naledi that it's something like that as well, that we have younger adults and that's the majority of the, of the population. About half of our bodies are children of, of varying ages. Hmm. So we have a very strong representation of young individuals, <laughs> male and female. It's very difficult for us to say uh, there's the, the skeletons that we have have very little size variation. If there are males and females, both there, they were very similar in size. What, um, like, what are, give us a sense for like, what do you, what are the uh, immediate questions that you're working on that, you know, or you're confident you can answer based on what you actually have to work with today? You know, there's a series of things that are kind of logical that, that will unfold where I don't know the answer yet, but I know the method that we're going to use to get it. And I know that we will follow that method when it makes sense, right? Some methods require us to destroy bone <laughs> or teeth, right? So we only undertake these with deliberation and with permits from the South African government and with a lot of consultation. So I can tell you that we will know something about the development of Naledi. We'll know something about its weaning age. We'll know something about, um, you know, exposures that they may have had during their life to things. And that knowledge is going to unfold slowly. Um, the same is true of the protein evidence, right? I think we're going to know a lot about the proteins of Naledi, but it's going to be a while. Um, with, the skeletal material, we know the anatomy of Naledi better than we know almost any other species of human relative. Um, we've published it in great detail. We've published hundreds and hundreds of pages of it. The, the, DNA, the uh, data is available online and other scientists are using it and applying it in their studies, right? Naledi is now the strongest example we have for, for Homo other than Neanderthals and modern humans. Um, and, and it's coming into studies in that way with, uh, there's still unknowns, however, with the anatomy, right? We don't know what Naledi's ancestors would have looked like, and we can do some work on its skeleton and phylogenetics to, to predict something about that. But what it will take is discovering individuals from other sites. And I expect and, and anticipate that we're going to hear about <laughs> other hominids that are similar to this from other sites. Um, whether they're Naledi or not, you know, it's, it's unclear. There's fossils that I've known about for a long time that have been published as Homo erectus because of their morphology, where I look at it today and I'm like, you know, actually, huh. Naledi yeah, is the yeah. most likely scenario here. I see. And and those will be, you know, we'll be reanalyzing things in that light. When the the fossils that you just mentioned, where you have that thought to yourself, where 
are those fossils from? It's a great fossil from southern Kenya, from a site called Alorgasile, that's about 900,000 years old, that is just a part of the skull that's above the eye orbits, but its brain size and its morphology look very much like Miletti. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's an example. Um, There's some teeth from Southern Africa from sites where the tooth is by itself or a part of a jaw it's by itself where I'm like, you know, actually it looks a lot like Naledi. Um, But, um, but those kinds of things are just as difficult to assess as, as any fossil is from a small fragment, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, what does it get me if I discover that this tooth is actually Naledi? Right. It gets me a little bit more knowledge of its geographic and temporal extent, but it doesn't yep. tell me a lot more about its biology. Yep. Yep. Um, perhaps you've already hinted at it, but you know, in the next six to 12 months, any, any major discoveries that you think will come out of uh, either your guys's work directly or, or things related to Naledi? Yeah. Um, y- y- what can I anticipate? Um, obviously we're working very hard on our descriptions of the burial material, the burial work and, and the art. And, and that's in a process at eLife where, uh, where preprints are available, but we're still responding to reviews. And so that's coming. Um, the, you know, some of the biochemical stuff may start to be coming out. You know, if we talk about six months to a year, that's possible. Um, But what I'm most excited about is our continued work exploring other parts of the system. Um, Our work that we've been doing the last couple of years in the Dragon's Back uh, Chamber, which is adjacent to the Dinaletti Chamber, we are now analyzing material and hopefully we'll be able to publish that and describe the context of that material next. Um, And it's that kind of thing, right? Expanding out our knowledge through this cave system I will say that I'm also working on other sites with other fossils and other species, and I'm just as excited about some of those. We've got some really cool work that our team is working on um, that that I do think will be coming out in 2024. All right, John, uh, thank you for your time. Um, I want to make sure I don't take too much of it. Uh, this stuff is always fascinating. I always enjoy talking to you. And um, do you want to just give people you know, where they can find you or follow along if, if they yeah. want to learn more? So the, the easiest thing to do is check out my blog, johnhawks.net, um, where you find sections on what I'm doing and uh, some of our research that's ongoing and blog posts that go back now to 2005, but uh, but curated blog posts. Right? I've really made a lot of effort to make sure that the information there is accurate, even when things have changed. Also, you can find our book, Cave of Bones, uh, at any fine bookseller. Uh, I have seen it at a number of them. And uh, the documentary on Netflix still showing, Cave of Bones. It is a really remarkable program, I have to say. I was really pleased with it. Um, I th- think it gives you a perspective on the kind of work that our team does in the cave system that you cannot get in any other way. Um, it is it is really remarkable to see the team. And we have an amazing team based in South Africa, South African cave specialists, uh, my South African colleagues, Lee Berger, Keneloy Molipiani, uh, Tiboko Mokobela, and, and a number of others who are super central uh, to all the work that we're doing. Um, so I, I, I love seeing them on film and I love seeing the cave. It's a really great way to see the work. All right, Professor John Hawks, thank you for your time. Thank you.
Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen and it's a handheld pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D, in all capital letters, to get $50 off your Lumen device today.